This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about Harold Camping and his predictions about May the 21st. It has been said that the one thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. This equally applies to those who should learn from church history. Throughout the history of the church, leaders have attempted to be specific about certain historical developments and relate those events to biblical prophecy, specifically the return of Jesus Christ. In 1843 and 44, for example, William Miller made specific predictions that Jesus would return in October of each one of those years. He, of course, did not. And those teachings would lead eventually to the founding of Seventh-day Adventism under Ellen G. White. In the late 1980s, a leader wrote a pamphlet entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. When Jesus did not return, those individuals were embarrassed and humiliated. Harold Camping today stands embarrassed and humiliated. He was wrong. How should we think about this? First of all, exactly what did Harold Camping teach? He concluded from his study of Scripture that Jesus would return for his church about 6 p.m. on May 21st, 2011, last Friday, and take, excuse me, last Saturday, and take the righteous to heaven. That event would then be followed by five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues, with millions of people dying each day. Finally, on the 21st of October, 2011, the world would end according to the details alluded to in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire and the new heaven and the new earth. How did he arrive at these specific dates, May 21st, last Saturday, and October the 21st? Well, in an interview he did with the USA Today, he opened his Bible to Genesis and said, Noah loaded animals into the ark in 4,990 B.C., a number he said he arrived at as the date for Noah doing that years ago by looking at carbon dating tree rings and other data. And these are his words. And in the interview, he went to Second Peter, where he read aloud, one day is with the Lord, a thousand years and a thousand years in one day. Leaving back to Genesis, he said that the seven days Noah spent loading the ark was really 7,000 years. He then added 7,000 to 4990 B.C., which arrives at 2010. He added one more year, this is what he said, because there's no year one in the Bible. As for the exact date of 21 May, he pointed again to Genesis, which says the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. According to the Jewish calendar, which he believes God uses, that is May 21st. Now, dear people, I summarized all of that to just give you the complicated, I think, logistics by which Harold Camping arrived at May 21st, 2011, as the return of Jesus for his church. 
He did publish in the 1990s another book, really more of an essay, in which he predicted that Jesus would return in 1994, and he made a mistake in his calculations, obviously. Camping told the New York Magazine in another interview, quote, God has given so much information in the Bible about this and so many proofs and so many signs that we know it is absolutely going to happen without any question at all. May 21st is the date. He's continuing the quotation. There is nothing in the Bible that God has ever prophesied. There's many things that prophesied would happen, that voice happened. But there's nothing in the Bible that holds a candle. The amount of information to this tremendous truth of the end of the world. I would be absolutely in rebellion against God if I thought anything other than it is absolutely going to happen without any question. May 21st is the date. Now, dear people, in that extended quotation from an interview he did in New York Magazine, I want you to note the categorical language that Harold Camping used. Dear people, it didn't happen according to what he said. So how did Harold Camping's teaching about May 21st become so widespread? Well, he lives in Oakland, California, and he's the founder and leader of Family Radio, a network of radio stations really all over the United States. Family Radio financed this nationwide campaign to promote May 21st at the date of Christ's return. As I understand it from the reading I've done, about 1,200 billboards did this across the United States and another 2,000 across the whole world. Neither Family Radio nor CBS Outdoor, which sold most of the billboard signs to Family Radio, would comment on the total cost of this campaign. But worldwide, it would seem reasonable to conclude it's in the millions of dollars. So, as we conclude this particular perspective on Harold Camping and his predictions about May 21st, how do we think biblically about this prediction? Dear people, it is imperative to remember the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1, he said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then in Matthew chapter 23, he, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, he said, But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. From these two passages in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, and in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, we have clear-cut language that Christians are forbidden to set dates about the return of Jesus. There's simply no other conclusion to be reached. Now, in my view, quite frankly, it is the heights of arrogance and presumptuousness to try and set such a date. It is important, nonetheless, to remember something. God has given us prophetic scripture. Significant portions of his word are prophetic. But God did not give us prophetic scripture to set dates. In his word, he makes it crystal clear why he has given us prophetic scripture. Let me summarize three reasons why there is prophecy in the Bible. Reason number one, to bring comfort and encouragement 
to those who are children by faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we see those words. The truth of Christ's return gives us hope. It gives us confidence. It gives us comfort. That is one of the reasons that God has given us prophetic scripture. What we see in all of the dimensions of living in a fallen world, they're not going to last. Christ is coming back for us. We do not have the authority or the right to try to set the date. Only the Father knows that. But that he is going to return, that profound truth with great certainty, brings hope and encouragement and comfort. Second reason he gave us prophetic scripture is that we are to be ready because we do not know the hour of his return. That is the clear teaching in Matthew 24, verses 32, all the way through 44. Be ready. You do not know the hour which I'm going to return. And then finally, he gives us prophetic scripture to teach us to be faithful. Matthew 24, verse 45, all the way through chapter 25, verse 30 of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus tells several parables. The whole point of those parables is be faithful. So comfort one another, the blessed hope of Christ's return, be faithful, and be ready. That's why God has given us prophetic teaching in his word. Harold Camping made a significant error in propagating something that's false and which has no biblical authority. It is quite sad, for he is a man who has blessed countless Christians through his life and through his radio station ministry on family radio. What a sad way to end one's life of service to the Lord. Perhaps God will use his false teaching to remind many that Jesus is going to return, but that we should never fall into the trap of pretending we know when that might be. The clarity of God's word is don't try to figure it out. Only the Father knows. The metaphor in Scripture of the relationship between Jesus and the church is bridegroom to bride. And following through that metaphor, especially as we think about it in the ancient Near Eastern world, the father would say to his son, go get your bride. And there would then be the pageantry, the pomp and circumstance, the the wedding feast, if you will, and then the consummation of that relationship. Jesus the son is waiting for the Father to say to him, go get your bride. And that's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 is all about. But it's only the Father who knows. And Jesus, in his submission to and obedience to and coming under the authority of the Father, has allowed only the Father, in a sense, to know that date. So we're waiting for the Father to say, go get your bride, Jesus. Only the Father knows that, and it is the heights of arrogance to try to set a date and figure it out. That's not our business, and we shouldn't waste time or, quite frankly, even brain cells on trying to figure it out. Only the Father knows. Now, in our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about something that's been in the news extensively in the last week, and that is President Obama and his now rather famous speech about Israel the Palestinians in the Middle East. 
In an extraordinary speech last Thursday, President Obama endorsed using the 1967 boundaries as the baseline for a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. He is the first American president to do so. Now, he also, if I can make a sidebar comment, prodded Arab governments to carry out the democratic reforms their citizens have demanded in what is now called the Arab Spring. Started in Tunisia, spread to Egypt, and now we see it in so many of the Arab nations in the Middle East. But returning to Israel in 1967 war, Israel's victory over Egypt and its other Arab neighbors expanded its control over territories in the West Bank and Gaza, over the Golan Heights, and over East Jerusalem. Since 1967, Israel has enjoyed stability in its north, where before 1967, Syria relentlessly shelled and bombed Israelis in Galilee. Israel also has reunited Jerusalem and made it the nation's capital. In doing so, Israel has made Jerusalem accessible to all peoples of all faiths, something that never occurred in Jerusalem when it was under Arab control. So that's why in his speech, when President Obama noted that Israel and the Palestinians would need to swap territory on either side of the 1967 border to account for large settlements that have taken root in the West Bank, it was somewhat of a surprise. The timing of the president's speech is also quite critical because the Palestinians are proposing that they will unilaterally declare their own state this coming September. His speech seems to give them even more credibility and support. Nonetheless, Obama did say, quote, symbolic efforts to isolate Israel at the United Nations in September will not create an independent state, close that quote. He also referred to a non-militarized Palestinian state in his speech, but that seems totally unrealistic. Fatah and Hamas recently signed a unity agreement, and there is simply no way that Hamas will agree to demilitarizing itself. Obama did recognize the extreme difficulty this unity agreement poses for Israel. He said, how can one negotiate with a party that has shown itself unwilling to recognize your right to exist? Close quote. How indeed. The president's strategy seems to be to segregate security issues and border issues from the more volatile issues of the status of Jerusalem and the fate of Palestinian refugees who are still claiming the right of return to the land in Israel. Officially, the government of Israel responded to President Obama's speech by declaring that while there were many points in the president's speech that we appreciate and welcome, this is a quote from their response, there were other aspects like the return to the 1967 borders, which depart from long-standing American policy, as well as Israel's policy going back to 1967. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu understandably argued that seeing the 1967 borders as the starting point for negotiations would result in borders that, these are his words, are indefensible, suggesting that the plan would weaken Israeli security and put Jewish people at risk. In fact, Netanyahu gave a speech about two weeks ago, and he reiterated it again the end of this week, acknowledging that Israel is prepared to see most of the West Bank to a Palestinian state, a major step in how he is positioning Israel for negotiations. 
he is willing up front to commit to significant withdrawal in the West Bank. But this begs a question. What about this unity agreement between Hamas, the terrorist organization, and Fatah, the organization that Mahmoud Abbas leads? Will this not help facilitate Obama's objection? Well, in my view, that's highly doubtful and objectionable, at least from my perspective. And there are several reasons. Let me cite five. First of all, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of Fatah within the Palestinian Authority, refuses to make any upfront concessions of his own, but has actually blown up four years of U.S.-sponsored initiatives and the relative prosperity that the West Bank has known these last few years. By signing that agreement with Hamas, Abbas will no doubt be obligated, in the words of columnist Jackson Deal, to fire his progressive prime minister, release scores of jailed Hamas militants, and bond his security forces with Hamas's Iranian-equipped army. If I understand that correctly, that is hardly in the interest of Israel. And it does not show good faith in any kind of negotiations to have Hamas linked now with Fatah. Secondly, Abbas is seeking a U.N. General Assembly vote on Palestinian statehood this coming September. In an op-ed piece in the New York Times, Abbas argued, quote, for a declaration of war on the status quo by which, with the U.N. vote for Palestinian statehood, he will be able to, now these are his words, pursue claims against Israel at the United Nations, at human rights bodies, and in the International Court of Justice. Let's put that another way. If the U.N. General Assembly votes for Palestinian statehood, Mahmoud Abbas and Hamas will get the world community to impose sanctions on Israel. And dear people, that is not a path to peace. That is not an agenda for peace. That's an agenda for war. Why in the world would Israel negotiate with someone that is doing that? Thirdly, with this unity agreement, plus the UN recognition of Palestinian statehood, there will be a concomitant change in Palestinian doctrine. The goal is no longer a peace treaty followed by statehood, but statehood followed by negotiations, a key feature of which will be reaching a just solution for Palestinian refugees. They are Abbas's words whose return to Israel would mean the demise of the state of Israel. In that op-ed piece in the New York Times, Abbas declared, quote, Palestine will be negotiating from the position of one United Nations member whose territory is militarily occupied by another. What an incendiary statement. As Deal correctly states, this is a formula for war. Fourthly, what has been the principal reaction of the Obama administration to all of this? It's amazing to me, but it seems as if the reaction of President Obama in his administration is now, let's put more pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Europe has been saying to the United States and to Israel, unless you begin negotiating again with the Palestinians, we will vote with the Palestinians in September for statehood. Finally, throughout the last few months, President Obama has been saying that the head of Assyria is a reformer, even as he's now gunning down his own people. Similarly, Obama has been saying the same thing about Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinians and saying Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, he is the real problem. The record of the past several years suggests something very, very different. In 2008, Mahmoud Abbas refused to accept a far-reaching peace offer from Netanyahu's predecessor, Ehud Omer, even as a basis for discussion, nor in 2008 would he make a counteroffer. He said, the gaps are wide. For two years, he has stoutly resisted peace talks with Netanyahu, even while conceding that the nominal reason for his intransigence, Israel's refusal to free settlements, was forced on him by President Obama. Now, Mahmoud Abbas is trying to transform the Arab Spring, what's happening in the other Arab nations, into a mass movement against Israel. It is a maneuver that, in my judgment, he knows will not bring peace with Israel. Dear people, quite honestly, I am personally appalled by what the United States government is doing about Israel and the Palestinians. I cannot see how Abbas of Fatah in the Palestinian Authority is interested in peace with Israel. What I just summarized above shows that. Our current president seems to believe that the primary barrier to peace is Israel. But Israel is surrounded by enemies on practically all sides, and its southern border with Egypt is no longer secure as it had been for the last 30 years. No other nation on earth faces what Israel faces. People at every edge of its borders that want to extinguish it. Mahmoud Abbas, in my view, is not a moderate. Everything about his deal with Hamas, his refusal to make hard decisions for genuine peace with Israel, indicates that he is not a friend of peace. So what do we do? Well, may the Lord God give great wisdom to our leaders as they seek to underwrite and support the existence of Israel. Were it not for the United States of America, Israel would have been obliterated many years ago. The United States has supported Israel since 1948, and that has been the bulwark of its survival. We have proudly championed the cause of the Jewish people and their homeland in Israel. For the first time since 1948, it seems as if that bulwark of the United States is seemingly weakening. May God give President Obama the temerity to stand with Israel and against the United Nations, against Fatah, and against Hamas. May he not give in, as he seems to be doing. May God give him the courage that he needs and what he seems to be lacking right now. If he does not have the courage, many key members of Congress should take up the cause. The unwavering support of Israel must remain the bedrock of our Middle Eastern policy. There is no other nation on planet Earth 
on which Israel so vitally depends for its survival in the United States. May we not turn our back on Israel. God made a commitment. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. May the United States remain the key bulwark of support for the nation-state of Israel. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.